Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of April 29th, 2019. On today's show, I talk about restaurant names and ride sharing and gondolas. And Jim presents the next to last show in our chronological Disneyland series. But first, let's bring in the man who wants on-ride photos for the emotional roller coaster of life, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? Alan, quick question. If you're on an emotional roller coaster, do you still have to keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle? Because isn't that kind of like a cavity search? So, <laughs> Still, I think, Jim, valuable, valuable advice. Okay. Since we're talking about emotional roller coasters, did you see there's uh, some imagery out there? They're moving at pace with the inside-out emotional whirlwind that's being built at Pixar Place. No, I didn't know this, but it's kind of funny because I came up with that. We uh, came up with that saying mm-hmm. before I, I knew about this. So, what is the? Isn't it the retheming of a ride at uh, Paradise Pier? Yeah, Pier? it used to be Flicks Flyers at a Bugs Land got sent back to Italy, I want to say, and they've retooled it, and it's now being dropped on the pad that where you used to find the Malibuomer in the Paradise Pier section of California Adventure, now Pixar Pier. This is going to be renamed Inside Out's Emotional Whirlwind, which for me, I wish they stuck with the original name, which was Mood Swings. <laughs> I always thought Mood Swings would be a great name for either a golf or a softball team. There we go. All right, Jim, every show should begin with a round of self-congratulations. We said a couple of weeks ago that from what we were hearing, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway was unlikely to open before Galaxy's Edge and Walt Disney World this summer. The Friday after that show came out at 5 p.m., buried at the end of an announcement about Railway Railway coming to Disneyland, Disney also confirmed that the ride wouldn't open until spring of 2020. So something like a seven-month delay, six to eight months. I hear the delay maybe in getting the uh, the projection technology working with the ride vehicles, which is something that uh, that Disney hasn't done before. They're trying it for the first time. What's uh, what's going on there, Jim? As we talked about, there are, in fact, some tech issues. Because, again, this is brand new stuff that Disney's doing. We also mentioned there's a manpower issue because they're throwing every available body at Galaxy's Edge to get it open for the, the tail end of August. That's right. Swing a, If you can uh, swing a hammer and pass a drug test, you're in. But there's another thing going on here, Len, and it actually it harkens back to Disneyland in uh, January of 1993. They opened Mickey's Toontown then, and then uh, almost one year to the day, they then opened the Roger Rabbit cartoon spin ride. The ride was basically done when mm-hmm. Mickey's Toontown opened in January of 1993. They kept it in mothballs because it was like, look, we won't have another big attraction in the park opening till March of 1995. That's when in the Indiana Jones Adventure is opening. So why don't we just hold this back and then, you know, in January of 94, we can roll out the commercials and so on. Are you saying, Jim, that Disney purposely doesn't build attractions as fast as they can so they've got something to release every year? I am shocked, shocked. I, that I, I'm going to cough right now, Jim. <laughs> <coughs> New fantasy line. <coughs> okay, sorry. Okay, but but uh, there's also there's some other secondary issues in regard to... Mickey and Minnie. Okay, that's right, because it's going in Toontown, right? And Disneyland is going in Toontown. Yeah. Did they have a space for that that kind of ride there? Actually, what if you look at the aerial uh, photography of the park, backing up against Mickey's Toontown is the parade rehearsal space. They also store a lot of the floats and do work inside. I mean, this is just massive building that right now, my understanding is the gag factory 
is going to factor into this that that's either load or unload but you blow through into this giant space that you can you can throw the attraction in but getting back to the disney hollywood studios version i mean look galaxy's edge opens tail end of of august Toy Story 4 comes out in June of this year, and by the time we get to fall, it will be the Blu-ray, DVD, digital download be available with that. Oh, from conversations I've had with friends at Walt Disney Studios Home Entertainment, they anticipate that's going to be one of the big sellers for this holiday season. So demand's okay. going to stay high for Toy Story Land. And then you've got you know that whole holiday programming you do for uh, on sunset boulevard coupled with the jingle bell jingle band projection show on the very show building that you were going to have people queuing up to get into for mickey and minnie's runaway way away and it's like from what i'm told yes if they could in fact have this thing open for december of this year but at the same time it's like do we really want to do that you know do we maybe want to push it you know into the spring so that way we've had a couple of months to figure out how we're handling the crowds for for Galaxy's Edge because they supposedly decided that given that Disneyland has three entrances and well Disney's World version only has two, there isn't going to be a lot of overlap between what California learns about how to get people in and out of this and stuff that they can use for Florida. So oh right, it's true. I mean, uh, number one, Walt Disney World only has two options, whereas Disneyland has three. I've heard by the way in Disneyland you'll be able to uh, they might they will enter the land in one of two ways. I think uh, Critter Country and Big Thunder, and then you can leave either way, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, or was it, mean, or was it enter one and leave anyway? It turns out there's going to be evidently one way. If you're in the first group of the day mm-hmm. that you will have the option of going in through the mid trail entrance or the entrance at the top of Big Thunder trail up toward Fantasyland. Mm-hmm. If you are in group two, what they're supposedly going to try is that they're catapults, going to... catapults, Jim, <laughs> catapults. Well, no, actually, meet us on the roof of the Grand Californian. That's right, just fling you in. This is something, as I understand it, the folks who handled retail, who, by the way, are not thrilled with the whole four-hour window thing. Oh yeah. Because you spend two of those hours in line. That's it, exactly. It's like, <laughs> we didn't make all this merch for people to walk by it. They've got to buy yeah. it. With four hours, you might be able to do a ride and maybe the lightsaber experience and mm. maybe the droids. But you're definitely, in four hours, there's no way you're going to get to see all the restaurants, all no, the merch, not and the one ride. It's no. not enough time. No, no. But so yeah. what they're supposedly talking about doing and taking advantage of the fact that Rise of the Resistance just will not be operating the first summer, is that Group 2 have to enter through Critter Country, and they'll wow. basically hold them down there, and there will be that Rise of the Resistance gear shop, so people could, in fact, Ow. be shopping, buying merch before they're then released. You know, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, so you can, you can, yeah, yeah, I got it. So you can stage the people there, you can mm. sweep the land, of everyone that was already in it and then bring these people in. Yeah, that go. makes sense. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. All right. So, that makes more sense. Cool. All right, Jim, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.bandcamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Elise C, Amy E, and Mo B, and the longtime subscribers, Bill R, Joe M, and BC80. Fun fact, Jim, the idea for Casey's Corner 
came from an intramural baseball team that these folks played on while attending culinary school. Not entirely sure that's how it happened, but sure, let's go with it. Culinary school is the polite way of saying that they've all got <laughs> knives and like to play with fire, right? Oh, so oh, let's go with go. the Casey's thing. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Arjun, let's do some uh, some quick news. The Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish podcast for a worry-free travel experience every time. Book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, Disney's announced travel times between stations for the new gondola uh, Skyliners. It looks like the travel time from Pop Century to Caribbean Beach is around six minutes. From Caribbean Beach to the studios is going to be another six minutes. If you're headed to the Riviera from Caribbean Beach, it's only five minutes, though, because it's right there. Mm-hmm. And then uh, nine minutes from Epcot to the Riviera. So if you're doing the math, folks, Pop Century to the Studios is 12 minutes. Pop Century to Epcot is 20 minutes. Caribbean Beach to the Studios is six, like we said. And to Epcot is 14. And Riviera to Epcot is nine. And Riviera to the Studios is 11. Jim, how does that sound to you? Better than a bus? Oh, don't get me wrong. I love these numbers, and I love the concept of the view you're going to get from up there. But as we've said from day one, the the wild card here is weather. So is the system going to shut down in thunderstorms? Obviously, if there are high winds, it's going to shut down. But what exactly is considered a high wind for the Skyliner? A bus isn't stopped by lightning or a little wind. Just I'll have to wait for a couple of months of operations and, you know, whatever information we gather from that before passing judgment. But I like what I see so far. 20 minutes from Pop to Epcot, though. And, th- and that's going to be a fixed time, too. It's not like you have to worry about, like, when the next gondola is going to come. So I okay. think that if, if, if at a 20-minute maximum, mm-hmm. that's a uh, that's a really good deal for people at a value resort. I agree. All right, Jim, uh, keeping on the transportation theme, I've been working on the 2020 edition of the, uh, the Unofficial Guide. And one of the themes that I keep coming back to as I work through the theme park chapters is that ride shares, ride sharing programs like Lyft or Uber is going to be really advantageous instead of driving to the parks coming up. And I think we've talked about before here how getting dropped off at the Contemporary is way faster and easier than going through the whole parking thing at the Magic Kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. That can take more than an hour depending on when you arrive. And you're not going to pay the $25 to park, but that $25 is going to go to ride sharing instead. But the way that I look at it, you're basically buying an hour of time for just a few dollars more. And that's that's like a good deal, right? I agree. The thing that that I wanted to talk about here though is as I was going through all of the new attractions and development at Epcot and the studios, I realized that they're also going to benefit from ride sharing. Cause when think about when Remy's Ratatouille adventure opens in Epcot next spring, mm-hmm. the people who come through the international gateway entrance are going to have like a 10 minute head start on the people who are walking from the, uh, from the main entrance. And that is a huge advantage. That's basically insurmountable. No one's going to beat you with a 10 minute head start. No one's going to beat you to France. Mm-hmm. But the only way to get to the International Gateway from offsite, if you're driving, is to valet park at one of the Epcot resorts, which is $33 plus gratuity, or get dropped off by an Uber and Lyft. Does that make sense? Perfectly. If you're going to like Boardwalk, these days you practically have to have an international visa to get past the guard. Yeah. I mean, they're going to ask you what you're doing there. Mm-hmm. The easiest thing is to just say, I'm going to valet park mm-hmm. and pay the $33 and be done with it. Yeah. But if you can do that, right, if, if you get to Remy first, mm-hmm. you can do that and Frozen Ever After without a fast pass, mm-hmm. in which case you could then fast pass Soren or, and Single Rider Test Track, mm-hmm. which is a pretty good strategy for seeing all of Epcot, Epcot's headliners in one day, That's at great. least until Guardians of the Galaxy opens. Mm-hmm. So the other thing, though, is if you think about like if you think about the studios, right, and I know the studios just went through a huge construction project, mm-hmm. 
They've got a whole new road system going into another park. So they've got a whole new parking lot. But still, man, I worry about traffic going in and out when Galaxy's Edge opens. Mm-hmm. It seems like getting stuck in gridlock there is a huge risk to take when you want to be at the front of that line to get into the park when it opens. So even there, I mm-hmm. still think the best strategy is to get dropped off the boardwalk and walk in. Plus, if you do that, like you said on an earlier show, mm-hmm. you can just skyline over to Epcot to see the new evening fireworks without the hassle of moving your car. And I think just for these three parks, ride sharing is the most efficient option. Mm-hmm. The wild card again is, you know, when Galaxy's Edge opens and how the crowds go. And just by the fact you've said this, Len, now mm-hmm. thousands of people are going to do this. <laughs> I know, I know. I uh, <laughs> What's funny, so in the last edition of the unofficial guide, it was the first edition where we put in the tip that said, just take an Uber or a Lyft mm-hmm. to get dropped off the contemporary. And I'm telling you, Jim, every single letter we received mm-hmm. about that particular topic was like, this is genius. You need to win some sort of award for it. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, is the Pulitzer Prize out of the question, right? <laughs> Literally, the people were like, I'm never going to depart at the Magic Kingdom again. Every, mm-hmm. every letter we got. In fact, we had one family who did the Magic Kingdom that way the first day and then gave up driving for the rest of the trip. They're like, oh, we're just going to Uber everywhere and be done with it. Cow, okay, wow. fair enough. Okay. Yeah, it was uh, it was really good. Uh, so, Jim, going back to a Galaxy's Edge, though, looks like Disney started sending reservations out for people who are staying in the Disneyland hotels mm-hmm. during Galaxy's Edge opening as of uh, May thirty first. It looks like everyone's getting that one four hour window inside the edge. So we talked about this a minute ago, but but how exactly is this going to work? Now you know how when you go to the Magic Kingdom on a day when Mickey's not so scary or Mickey's very merry is going to be happening that evening. And you have the person with the sign, you know, with the effect of please come over here, check in so you can get your wristband, that sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, they've got like a sandwich boards or uh, or vertical sidage, right? Yeah. yeah. So as we talked about, when you're sending groups in four increments in, these cast members will be standing in there throughout the day and scanning your pass, which you'll either have a physical paper copy or it'll be on your phone or your tablet, and they'll then issue you the appropriate color wristband. Now, again, if you're there in the first group of the day, I think there's a component that you can either get it at your resort. There'll be a designated Star Wars Galaxy's Edge desk, and you can go there if you're in the first group of the day and collect it there. Otherwise, they want to be able to do it at the park just in case there are operational issues and they have to yeah. adjust. I mean, that's that's the other thing. It just, at least for California, taking advantage of the two entrances off of Big Thunder Trail and the one down at Critter Country. But that's the thing, again, with Walt Disney World, is that it's only the first group of the day that will be able to basically enter at the top huh. coming in through Toy Story Land toward the rest of the day, send them in down off of Grand Avenue. But wasn't there a glitch early on where suddenly the dates were out of sync and people were freaking out and Disney's call center is a direct result that <laughs> got swamped? Uh, so I, I, through a friend of a friend, heard what was going on there. I won't, uh, won't throw anybody under the, the bus mm-hmm. there. But uh, the reservations that went out ended up being, in many cases, for a day or two before your reservation actually began, which presented practical problems, right? You you can't check into the hotel mm-hmm. for another couple of days, yet Disney was, at, was saying that you needed the reservation to uh, mm-hmm. to get in. So they, they eventually corrected all of that. I still don't have my reservations, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. I don't know what's happening, but uh, hopefully we'll get them in time. So they got that resolved. The park is going to be open, what, 8 a.m. to midnight 
at least. Yeah. So 16, 16 or 17 one-hour windows. They're not going to do it during extra magic hour in the morning, right? Because they've got magic mornings from 7 to 8. Magic 8-Bowl says check back later. I mean, okay. you know, it, the problem is that you've got concierges that work at all of your higher-end resorts are like, I have to be able to tell my guests that they're going to be getting some sort of a special perk here. So what are we doing? So uh, here's why here's why I asked the question. Mm. On June 2nd, so yep. two days after Galaxy's Edge starts previews, the park is only open for 10 hours, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. That seems unlikely, right? Hey, um, I mean, it's open till midnight every other day that week, as mm. far as I can tell. But, but closing at 6 means the last group that can go in goes in at four? Mm-hmm. No, two. Two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock, five o'clock. Yeah, mm-hmm. because you, they're not going to let people in at five mm-hmm. only for an hour, which means that they can only, you've got an 8 a.m. slot, a nine, a 10, a 12, an 11, a 12, a one, a two. I can't count today. So what, seven, seven groups? That's not very many people to get into the park unless mm-hmm. they're assuming that they're going to need the time from 6 p.m. on to sort of do maintenance on the land. Just like last week with the, you know, the reservations being out of sync and that sort of thing. There are lots of people who are supposed to be talking to one another and comparing schedules that haven't quite done that yet. So. Yeah. All right. So that'll, that'll, get, uh, that'll get settled. All right. Fair enough. We hope. All right, Jim, uh, one more uh, quick thing, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll take a quick break and come back for our, our main part of the show. Jim, I was, uh, I was looking over some of the new restaurant names mm-hmm. that Disney's been uh, toying around with, and I have to ask, when did restaurant names become so literal? Like when do when did the restaurant names start spelling out everything on the menu? Mm-hmm. Like the new place over at Coronado Springs is Toledo Tapas Steaks and Seafood. I wonder what they're serving there, right? Or the the new restaurant in France that's called the Crapery. It serves crepes. In Disneyland, right? There's a place called Blackcraft Burgers and Shakes. What's happening here, Jim? I'm sorry, Len. We live in a search engine driven world right now. And it just, it's, you know, somebody sitting there with their iPhone and going, I want dinner and I would like a burger. I'm at Disney World. Or, you know, Dis- I want Disneyland Space Burgers. Disneyland, yeah. Dis- Disney Space Steaks. Yeah. It's not that Disney hasn't shortened or collapsed names in the past. I mean, for example, if you. You look at the pre-opening stuff for the Grand Floridian, Narcoosies. This was my example, right? Are we ever going to see a name like Narcoosies again? It's not like they're serving Native Americans. (laughs) Narcoosies dash. (laughs) We don't serve. We we don't serve ground up Native Americans. (laughs) Yeah, but 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 again, back in the day, Narcoosies was actually Narcoosie Nicks, or at least if you looked at the stuff for '87 prior to the opening of the flow. And they collapsed that name in prior to the flow opening in June of 1988. And they ended up just as Narcoosies. Yep. How about that? Mm-hmm. I don't know, Jim. I think this, I think this trend is, uh, is unusual. It, they, they kind of got away from it a little bit at the Riviera with the uh, Topolino's Terrace, the flavors of the Riviera. I agree. That, that at least doesn't say, you know, comma, we serve Italian and French food. Mm-hmm. But if there was a subtitle to that restaurant, I'd bet money that's what it was. You're probably not <laughs> All right. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break. Coming up after our break, Jim talks us through the next to last episode of our chronological Disneyland series with the end of Michael Eisner's time as CEO and the beginning of the run of Bob Iger. We'll be right back. All right, Jim, our next to last episode of the chronological Disneyland series, talking about the end of Michael Eisner's time as CEO the beginning of the run, uh, run of Bob Iger. Where do you want to begin? 
I thought we'd start with what people were most recently complaining about, and that was the changing out of the auction scene in Pirates of the Caribbean. I think that was June of last year they did that, and the take a wench for a bride scene. And, you know, there was all this grumbling about political correctness and that sort of thing, but it's like, it, you understand this happened before? Back in January of 1997, they took, uh, it's actually the scene after the auction where you had the pirates chasing the women that they just bought. I do remember this because this was right around the time that I started mm. with my, not only graduate school, but reading the unofficial guide mm. in detail as part of my graduate school work. So I do remember you know, when this happened. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Because here, here's Tom Bracato from the Disneyland Resort in, in January of that year going, we listen to our guests and our guests have raised concerns about that scene. But now, you know, yeah. you, you swap out lust for gluttony. You, all they really did was they reversed the positioning of the A, a figures on the, sort of the merry-go-round mechanism. So now instead of the women or the men chasing the women, it's the women chasing the men and the men are holding platters of food that they've stolen. Okay. The other thing, though, as an old Epcot fan, they had shut down World of Motion at Epcot the oh, year previous yeah. and they actually folded in. If you were, were paying attention and were a fan of that attraction, you could find a lot of those figures in that the updated new PC version of Pirates of the Caribbean. And this was during a period where the company was kind of not only getting concerned about politically correct issues, but also getting kind of concerned that Disney was kind of getting out of sync with what the company was up to. Right? For example, March of 1999, we saw the Swiss Family Treehouse shut down, and then three months later... At, at Disneyland, right? Yeah, it, it yeah, opens okay. up as the Tarzan Treehouse. And they had James MacArthur, who had played Fritz in the Disney live-action Swiss Family Robinson movie back in December of 1960. And they asked him how he felt about you know this new attraction coming in. And it's like, he said, you know, it's kind of weird to outlive your memorial. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, like today, is, mm. is Tarzan viewed any differently, you know, 20 years on than Swiss Family Treehouse? That's a very interesting question because Tarzan would, going forward, was then supported by an animated series that ran for two years. I do not remember that, which tells you probably how many other people saw it. Yep. Yep. Uh, right. There was also, I want to say, a home premiere, Tarzan 2, but the company felt at least for a while it was a better bet. We're either supporting a movie from 1960 or we're supporting a movie from 1999. Yeah. It's still today a problematic attraction because obviously if we're talking about the Americans with Disabilities Act, Yep. You have a whole bunch of people who can't take advantage of this attraction. And whether they mean to or not, this sets Disney up in a situation where people get resentful. And so as we move into, say, things like Shanghai, you know, you have that mm -hmm. whole Adventure Island section where it's all climbing ropes and moving through obstacles and that sort of thing. But they did make a point of putting in enough stuff that folks who are differently abled can st still enjoy the same attraction. Okay. The other big news during this period is the introduction of FastPass. I mean, I don't need to tell you how that fundamentally changed the theme park experience. And oh, yeah. The problem was when you bring FastPass into a park at that point that's just shy of its 45th birthday, you're dealing with walkways that were laid out in the 50s. Where do we put 
all of these extra people. And in fact, the first set of, of fast passes that were set up at Disneyland, you had Small World Holiday, and then immediately followed with Space Mountain, Splash Mountain, and Roger Rabbit's Cartoon Spin. And they picked attractions that are deep in the park to drive yep. people as far as possible into the park. But at the same time, that shows a fundamental misunderstanding of how FastPass works because... <laughs> yes, 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 yes. You know, it's not to go stand in front of it yet. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly... Once you have the pass, it's like, well, I don't have to be in this queue. I'm I'm out in the streets, I'm in the stores, and it's just suddenly like, why does the park feel so much more crowded? It's like, you cut them loose, moron. Yeah, the, the 30% of the people who are in line or on rides are now it's down to 20%, right? Yeah, so there were a couple of years of operational things that really bit them in the butt there while both the folks at Disney World and Disneyland learned about FastPass. And to add to the fun, February 2001, we got uh, Disney California Adventure opened, and th that's a whole different can of worms. But we're going to stick at Disneyland right now. And you're getting in much the same way as shutting down Swiss Family Treehouse and turning into Tarzan's uh, Treehouse. September 9th, 2001, Country Bear Jamboree closes at Disneyland. And we were talking about how different divisions of the company don't necessarily talk to one another because here's Parks and Resorts shutting down Country Bear Jamboree at the exact same time that Walt Disney Pictures is making the Country Bears movie. That's the thing I, I can't figure out. Like what? That would never happen today. One would hope or if we could borrow the DeLorean and go back in time, it's like, you really don't want to make this movie. It's terrible. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, was, maybe maybe you do want to close the, close the, uh, the attraction and also not make the movie. Maybe that's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> the reason they shut that down is because they wanted to bring the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh ride that had been so successful at Disney World's Magic Kingdom to Anaheim. At the press event, that opening day, Nobody was asking about Winnie the Pooh. That was because the day previous, Disneyland had opened and mm. Space Mountain closed. I mean, Space Mountain Ooh. closed for two years, Len, on that for day. For two years? Did oh, this was years. unannounced, right? Yes. So the, the press is there. Hey, what's the deal with Space Mountain? We, we don't want to talk about it. Oh, just a thing. Just uh, We'll have it back up in a couple of days. As soon as yeah. you guys leave. No need to write about this. According to folks I've spoken with, who worked at the attraction that day, they came in and did their normal safety inspection. You know, they were just firing up the systems. They were eyeballing a track and somebody noticed that there was a length of track that whether it was bolts had broken or, you know, just overnight without anybody riding it, it said shifted out of place. And it was like, what the hell? And so they then walk through and check bolts on a number of, of key sections of the track. And it's like, Oh my God, we cannot let the guests on this. And so they shut it down. They tore out all of the track. By the time this thing reopened for mm -hmm. July of 2005, it was effectively a new attraction. But what had happened uh, back in 1997, they created a brand new thing they called the Streetacular, the light magic show uh, that was supposed to replace a Main Street Electrical Parade. In fact, they they spent $40 million on these floats that were, that were stages that could roll down the street. and they, I don't remember they, any of this. There's a reason. It lasted one summer. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was like, what was I doing in the middle of, uh, the, middle of the But summer? they built these things to last 10 years. They were so sure they had a hit. But 
It was a, a $40 million boondoggle. And so mm. going into the fall of 1997, the then president of Disneyland Park hires T. Irby. He's a former major general for the U.S. Army. He had served 33 years, and they effectively brought him in to be Disneyland's landlord. He was the head of facilities for the parks, and T. Brought kind of a U.S. Army attitude in, which was basically that you run something until it breaks and then you fix it. So during this period, it was not uncommon to get on a a ride like, say, Pirates of the Caribbean and notice that, wow, there's a a number of A-figures that aren't moving, but you can still enjoy the ride. In fact, for example, with Pirates of the Caribbean, they wouldn't shut it down for maintenance until the auctioneer malfunctioned because it was like that's a key figure if the auctioneer isn't working we have to shut this down but otherwise we can get away with this going on and and going forward you know there were a couple of troubling warning signs i mean for example there was the christmas eve 1998 where the columbia was coming into dock and a cast member jumped out and took a mooring rope and tied it to a cleat and the huh. cleat came loose Oh, geez, really? With the tension on the rope, it flew into the crowd. And there was a, a gentleman, Luan Fee Dawson, who uh, he, both he and his wife were, were hit in the head with this cleat. Those things are huge and they're metal. Yeah, and that's the thing. He, he suffered a traumatic brain injury and two days later died. And in the end, Disney did uh, an investigation and it, they believed that it was cast member error at that point. They were bringing the Columbia in too quickly. Oh, too much tension on the rope, which caused... Okay, all right, fair enough. But at the same time, there were people at Disney who were very quietly... It's like, well, you know, there was also... The dock should have had preventative maintenance. You know, they came... The cleat came loose because there was dry rock. This is unfortunate. We're sad for the family and a settlement was made and that sort of thing. But so you had this incident happen December of 1998. You had the Space Mountain track issue in April of 2003. And the thing that really got things going badly here was September of 2003. Mm -hmm. Marcel Torres, 22, of Gardena, California, is riding Big Thunder Mountain. Trains run around the track that morning 12 times. On the 13th time it comes into the station, the cast members hear a noise. And they're like, okay, when this train comes in again, let's pull it out of the rotation. That noise concerns me. And the problem Mm -hmm. is they didn't get the chance to pull it out of the rotation because as the train was going around the track this next time, the locomotive that's in the front of a a Big Thunder car Mm -hmm. came up off the track and folded back on the first car. And poor Marcel was crushed. Department of Occupational Safety and Health, California, comes in, does a full investigation, and they basically determined that there had been some miscommunication. In fact, the folks who did maintenance, there was some confusion over to whether they should have used a green tag or a yellow tag or whether they were doing the work necessary on these cars. And by March of 2004, they're allowed to start running Big Thunder again, but by then, T. Irby has been moved on to another job assignment within the park, and preventative maintenance becomes the byword at Disneyland. Understandably so, right? Yeah. But not just for safety reasons, Len, because at this point, we are just 14 months out 
from Disneyland's 50th anniversary. Ah, okay, yeah. The whole world is going to be coming here. And Matt, we met, who had been at that, up until that point uh, working over at the Disney Cruise Line. They bring him in to Disneyland five and a half weeks after the Big Thunder incident. Mm-hmm. And Matt's job is to get Disneyland ready for its 50th anniversary. And right. it's an impossible task that he manages to pull off. I mean, if you came through the door on May 5th, 2005, the place looked like it did in July of 1955. Every inch of it was painted. It was scrubbed, you know, immaculately. Matt comes through the door in 2003 and realizes we probably need a new attraction for the 50th. And and what are we going to do? And there was some discussion initially. I don't know if you remember... Uh, when you go to Disneyland in, you know, 2004, 2005, just off of the hub, there was a Little Mermaid meet and greet. I remember this. Yeah. Well, the, there was some discussion because there was this thing called Triton's Garden that you'd effectively walk through as you'd make your way to the aerial meet and greet. And the thing is, what if we take the building that the Rocket Rods queue used to be in, which back in the day was the Circle Vision 360 building. Mm-hmm. What if we put a Little Mermaid right in there and we just, we create, you know, and again, Matt was looking for a shortcut. It's like, okay, so we ha- already have the queue outside. People, you know, queue through Triton's Garden and we'll have them enter the show building at the back, the side that faces the Matterhorn, and we'll have them exit down by where the Sub Lagoon was. But the thing of it is, it's like, now, wait a minute, we got to do, if we're going to do a Little Mermaid ride, we got to design a ride system, we got to build the sets, and we only have till May of 2005. So Matt, practical guy, was like, all right, well, hang on. Since 1998, they've had that Buzz Lightyear Space Ranger Spain of Florida. Let's do that instead. You know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. And, and sure enough, they were able, because he made that choice, they were actually able to have that thing open before the 50th anniversary got started on May 5th. They got it open in March. Mm -hmm. But 2005, significant year for the company, not just because of the 50th anniversary of Disneyland. It's also the year that Michael Eisner agreed to step down as CEO of the company. But Michael insisted that he be allowed to stay on long enough so he could preside over the opening of Hong Kong Disneyland which if you go from Main Street to the castle, that really is a clone of Anaheim. It just, Michael really played it safe toward the end of his career with the company. But there's this famous story of Bob Iger being there at the opening of Hong Kong Disneyland. And he's watching the opening day parade and particularly the people watching the people who are watching the parade. And as the parade floats went by with Mickey, Minnie, Winnie the Pooh, you know, that sort of thing, there wasn't, all that much of a reaction. Whereas when the Prey Floats went by with Buzz Lightyear and Woody, you know, again from Toy Story, got a huge reaction. And this was actually the moment that Iger realized if we're going to continue to make these parks, we need characters that people know now. This is the moment that Disney and Pixar are on the outs. In fact, Steve Jobs is already talking with other studios about do you want to distribute these films after our deal with Disney is done? So, right. Yeah. uh, This is the thing where he didn't, uh, they didn't want to deal with, uh, with Eisner. Yep. I don't know if you saw just announced earlier this week, Len, Bob Iger's got a book coming out later this year. Really? Yeah. It's called the ride of a lifetime lessons learned from 15 years as the CEO of the Walt Disney company. It's coming out on September 23rd. So 
I'm going to assume this story is included as part of the book because, again, January 5th, to, uh, 25th, 2006, Disney buys Pixar for $7.4 billion. John Lasseter's made creative consultant in Imagineering. And then from there, we get into IP land. <laughs> yeah. Iker's not on the job nine months before we see the Jack Sparrow and Barbosa animatronic figures go into uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Or yep. I was I was okay with that mm-hmm. sort of fit the theme, and it was a, good, a good, really good movie. All right, go ahead. Well, how did you feel about the following year when they did the Pirates Lair thing out on Tom Sawyer Island? Did that work for a you? A little or? bit of a stretch. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, it, things continue to stretch, Len. You know, not six weeks after the Pirates Lair opens up, we get the June 11th opening in 2007 of the Finding Nemo sub- Submarine Voyage. And remember, we, we just told that story on the last installment yep. of this about the Atlantean encounter and how it, that at least sort of fit the sci-fi theme, whereas this is the company spent $70 million to bring the subs back with this cartoony theme that really doesn't fit Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland? But, but no. again, it's a hugely popular IP that, frankly, six months prior to this in Walt Disney World on the very same day, we had the seas with Nemo and friends open at Epcot while across the way, finding Nemo the musical opens at Animal Kingdom. And then just two days before the Finding Nemo submarine voyage opens in Anaheim, we have Crush's Coaster open at oh. Walt Disney Studios in Paris. So did this was- Were you, I was there the, a few months after it opened. Mm-hmm. You talk about, it's one of the longest lines I've ever waited in, in my entire life. Mm-hmm. But also the French are a more petite people than me. Okay. I, I had trouble fitting into the ride, into the seats. I am not a large person. Mm-hmm. When I heard that they were bringing over the Remy ride from Disneyland Paris, I was like, I hope the ride vehicles are bigger. Eesh. Have you been on, on Space Mountain in Disneyland Paris? I have not. I went on with, uh, with Fred, our statistician, one time. Mm-hmm. And again, neither of us are particularly large people. We're reasonably in reasonably good shape. Mm-hmm. Both of us mm-hmm. had trouble getting in, in the individual seats and it's like the like it was like we were we were the stay puffed marshmallow man in a Barbie car. Oh, it was like, like Fred, like we're not we're not big. What's going on here? It's like, smaller people over there. I don't know. I have a headache now just talking about it. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm now very concerned about Remy at Epcot. But again, you know the, the the decisions they made there about bringing the Pixar characters in. I mean, if we shift yeah. attention back over. The California Adventure quickly here. That park opens, as we mentioned, February 2001, and then just struggles to get yeah. people to come through the door. Because remember, this was supposed to be the companion park. This was supposed to be the blow-off when Disneyland got too busy, and it was also supposed to pull the Walt Disney World to compel people to buy vacation packages so they'd stay in Disney's on-site hotels for two, three, four, five days at a time. And so they try to fix the California adventure problem by throwing characters at it. So we talked about at the top of the show about Fit Flicks Funfair. That opened in October 2002. I mean, the park had barely been open a year at that point or you know, a year plus, and it's like, let's get a new land in here with characters. And then we get yeah. the Aladdin musical opens in 2003, the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, May 2004, Turtle Talk with Crush. Give you some idea how quickly that was cloned. 
The Epcot version only opened in November of 2004. Yeah. So it's so like, it's like, hey, we're going to make two of these, two of everything. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, we get uh, Monsters, Inc., Mike and Sully, the rescue opens January 2006. But it just was there like, something was there something at DCA before that? You we're talking about Superstar Limo, aren't we? Oh, uh, okay. You no, know, that's a whole show unto itself. <laughs> Len, that is definitely it puts the lotion in the bucket country. You know, you don't you know there's there's right. so we'll much it, trauma we'll... associated with, you know, superstar limo. That's a whole show unto itself. All right, all right, we'll do that then. So October two thousand seven, we get Disneyland announcing that they are about to begin a one point one billion five year long redo of California Adventure, where virtually everything that's going to go into this park is now driven by a well-known IP or it's character-based. And that pretty much is where we should probably leave off for the final installment of the Chronological Disneyland, which we're, you know, where we go from the DCA redo to Galaxy's Edge and, you know, to, to how the lessons that were learned on Cars Land are being used today as they they rush to finish black spire outpost cool all right so we're gonna wrap it all up in the next show there we go it's a bittersweet uh bittersweet thing to look forward to all right folks that's gonna do it for the disney dish show today and for more of us head on over to disneydish.bandcamp.com where you'll find exclusive shows never before heard on itunes we are produced fabulously by aaron adams who says you don't have to be a star baby to be in his 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 show don't forget to go into iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show.